This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. Well, for Liz Cheney, the party is over, or apparently the Republican Party anyway. She lost that vote in Wyoming, voting, uh, the voters just giving her a crushing defeat in a Republican primary. We will go in-depth into what it means for her, for the uh, state, and for the nation. But while she'll be leaving the House, could she have a career still in politics? She's hinting that she may run for president. And Rudy Giuliani, who finds himself the target of a criminal probe in Georgia, was in the Peach State this morning to testify in front of a grand jury. Six hours, in fact, he spent investigating the grand jury's attempts to overturn that state's 2020 election results. The CDC is getting a makeover after a sloppy response to COVID and not the best start with monkeypox. Speaking of COVID, new research out of Cedars shows most people who were infected by Omicron, they probably never even knew they had it. And then at the end of the show, pop quiz, uh, breakfast, Charles, what's better, cereal or like an omelet, couple egg omelet? What do you think? Uh, my own choice, blueberry yeah. muffin. Okay. What about uh, <laughs> granola bars versus ice cream? Oh, I know which one I'd want. Yes, once. Uh, but we are going to talk with Tufts University because they say they have like the definitive food guide, what you should eat. Some people are going to be very happy and some people <laughs> are not. We start, though, in Wyoming and a really bad night for Liz Cheney. Leo Wolfson covers state politics for the Cowboys State Daily. Leo, thanks for being with us. So to say that she went down in defeat, I guess, is an understatement. The numbers were really crushing. Yeah, thanks for having me on today, guys. Uh, if this were a football game, I think she would have lost about 56 to 3 huh. uh, if you had to do that. Uh, lost by 37 points to uh, Harriet Hageman, her uh, lead challenger in the race, who is a uh, endorsee, uh, was endorsed by former President Donald Trump. Uh, and as we all know, or many people know, that Cheney has been very outspoken against Trump uh, really since he started uh, uh, questioning the results of the 2020 election. Uh, so to not, to, you know, to, to, this was just in simple forms uh, a big loss for her um but she is taking it in, in stride and uh, it's gonna be very interesting to see where she goes with this the next couple of months when you talk to people what do they say about her give us some of the range of reactions is this full like oh she's a democrat now because she doesn't like donald trump or is it you know what we might have voted for if she just kind of didn't go full anti-trump yeah, I think it's more the the, the latter there. Uh, I, I I haven't spoken to too many people who legitimately think that she's a Democrat, but they look at it more as simply as an issue that she betrayed Wyoming uh, and that she kind of defied the wishes of the people that she was representing uh, in the U.S. House. At the end of the day, Trump won Wyoming by a larger margin than any other state in the 2020 presidential election. And for her, Cheney to have won this race, she would have literally had to probably change the minds of uh, about 35 percent of the entire state's voters on the issue of Trump. And that's just that's asking a lot uh, uh, under any circumstance. Um, so I think at the end of the day, they just looked at it as simply as her not representing their wishes. But of course, she comes from from really a family that that is, I guess it's kind of political uh, uh, royalty in in Wyoming, right? I mean, because of her her dad, who was a congressman there, and then of course went on to become uh, eventually vice president of the United States. So, speak a little bit to us about uh, from a, a family point of view, the Cheney family, which to Wyoming was, I guess, kind of like the Kennedy family uh, was, is, I suppose, uh, to Massachusetts. What does that mean? 
Yeah, it certainly holds a lot of ground. And that's, to be honest, why she even had uh, success initially and get, got elected initially. It was because of that. Because at the end of the day, she didn't spend much of her life in Wyoming prior to buying a house here in 2013. I think she only lived here for a few consecutive years while she was in middle school uh, and spent most of her life uh, in Virginia growing up. So she was uh, relatively not a, a native by any means, uh, but she kind of rode off her dad's uh, past experience in the state. And you're right, she was he was a very, very popular congressman in Wyoming his entire career. Uh, and she was riding off that for a while. But even before her speaking out against Trump, there was still rumblings that she was a carpetbagger and things of that nature. But obviously, it was never enough to stop her from getting elected by any means. Uh, so in a way, the, the kindling was sort of already there. Uh, and then just her speaking out of Trump truly, truly lit that flame. And even though Dick Cheney has uh, spoken on her behalf during this campaign and spoken out against Trump, they they did a campaign commercial about two weeks ago. It really didn't seem to resonate significantly at all with most voters. Leo Wolfson covers state politics for the Cowboy State Daily. OK, so now imagine it's uh, 2024. And I know a lot of you are thinking, oh, if only. But let's say it's 2020. We're trying to get to tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I know. But imagine, okay, you know, play along. Imagine it's 2024 and uh, Republican presidential uh, candidate Liz Cheney steps onto a debate stage to face Donald Trump. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Still to come, CDC getting a makeover after its response to the COVID outbreak. And in the next hour, can the UC Regents play spoiler to UCLA's plans to get out of the Pac-12? Right now, though, Liz Cheney's congressional career in Wyoming is uh, over. But uh, Cheney's long-term political prospects remain, well, kind of compelling, I suppose. She has been asked and has not totally dismissed the possibility of running for president in 2024. And if she ran as a Republican, that would likely mean maybe squaring off directly with former President Trump. A.B. Stoddard is a columnist, editor at Real Clear Politics. A.B., thanks for coming back with us. Uh, let me ask you about that. Uh, you know, I've already heard some people expressing concern that if she were to, to run, not that she would win, she probably wouldn't get the nomination, but that she could end up acting as a spoiler uh, in some way. Is that a, a real danger that if she decides to run, she could kind of backfire in her own plan? I think there is a lot of concern about uh, you a unity ticket, a third party effort, uh, an independent candidacy taking votes away from um, Biden or a Democrat in 2024 and giving um, the presidency back to Donald Trump. I don't, that's why I don't see Liz Cheney doing that. I think what she'd like to do is run in a Republican primary where she forces everybody to address the big lie. And she calls out everybody who is holding Donald Trump's um, baggage on conspiracy theories and election lies and forces them to either be on the side of democracy and the constitutional order, which Mike Pence, the former vice president, sounds like he's trying to be, um, or on the side of the big lie. The problem for Liz Cheney, he, she would do that to damage Donald Trump's path to the nomination and, and perhaps steer it to somebody else. It wouldn't be obviously her. That would be you know, a great patriotic selfless act. The problem is that the Republican National Committee 
is now so co-opted by the former president. They pay his legal bills. They promote his social media platform. They sell his son's books that it's really hard to imagine a scenario where the RNC would allow her to be on the debate stage. It is also really hard to imagine a scenario where these state parties that have been so, um, they really based for all intents and purposes, they've been, they've been taken over by Trump uh, allies that where they allow her to get on the ballot. So in, 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 in imagining a Republican run for Cheney, um, they, it seems there are just are a lot of structural and procedural obstacles. I see a bunch of people talking about, you know what, she's going to get out of Congress, but she's still got the megaphone. Everyone's listening. Is anyone listening, though? I mean, who's listening? Democrats and then the media. But if Republicans aren't, then where are we? She will have influence if she uh, gets independence to turn away from the Republican Party because it's a party of people who lie. Um, that and who are trying to dismantle the constitutional order. That's her, that was her message last night, that no one should be supported if they are holding up these lies um, and if they are trying to torch democracy. So um, if she, through the January 6th committee, before the uh, search at Mar-a-Lago, she had managed, um, or, or the revelations that came out of the hearings of the January 6th Select Committee have managed to make some Trump supporters start to believe that he was damaged goods and might not be able to win again and had them talking nicely about the former president, but looking at other people like Ron DeSantis when they were thinking of 2024. That's because they thought that the revelations coming out of the, of the hearings were damaging for the former president. They are going to continue in September. Even if she's not a presidential candidate, she can continue to ensure uh, that that coalition on the Republican side becomes smaller and smaller if the people in the party that remain um, are, are all uniformly willing to, to lie for Donald Trump. Is there a route for her to uh, some point return to Congress? In our last segment, we were talking to a reporter from Wyoming who pointed out that in many ways she was always considered, he used the word carpetbagger, because she grew up most of her life in Virginia, he was telling us, uh, and only sort of bought a residence uh, in Wyoming pretty close in proximity to when she first ran for Congress. And since she's been in Congress, has barely been back to Wyoming. Might she find a career path back in Congress from a different state, like maybe Virginia? <laughs> I feel... Like, I can't say never anymore because we're in the Wild West here and there are no more <laughs> uh, rules that that um, apply uh, that can't be broken in politics. So I, I believe that that's entirely possible for someone like Liz Cheney, who now I believe is, is the most consequential House member in my lifetime. Um, surely that could change later, but um, she has taken her place in history and, and elevated herself to a point where she's really a hero to many, many people. And if she chose a different residence, it's not beyond her to get to get um, elected to Congress from somewhere else. That, that's certainly the case. It would be interesting to know what party she would run in, however. A.B. Stoddard's columnist, editor, Real Clear Politics. Coming up, Rudy Giuliani goes to Georgia and it wasn't to eat a bunch of peaches. This is KNX In-Depth, along with Charles Feldman and Mike Simpson. A little bit later on, new research from Cedars finds most people infected with the Omicron strain of the coronavirus 
probably never even realized they had it. And also a little bit later on, if you had an egg omelet for breakfast today, you probably think, well, I did a really good thing. Good job. Good job. Pretty, pretty healthy <laughs> choice. Well, turns out you may be wrong. Right now, though, Trump lawyer and confidant Rudy Giuliani in Atlanta this morning answering questions from a criminal criminal grand jury investigating the Trump team efforts to overturn Georgia's 2020 election results comes after he was named a target of that probe. Jenny Durkin, former mayor of Seattle, but before that served as U.S. attorney for the state of Washington from 2009 to 2014. Thanks for being back with us. So answering questions is key because I guess we have to wait and see if you actually answered any questions. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think whatever happened in that uh, secret grand jury room, he's wishing he had that egg omelet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what what does walk us through for people who have never had the I don't know, the privilege of uh, being called before a grand jury and also keeping in mind that his attorneys were, as I'm sure, you know, they were informed earlier this week that he is a target, which has its own uh, specificity. Uh, what does that mean? Somebody is a is a target for a grand jury. They go into the room. What happens? You know, I think that's such a great question. I think that there's so much news in the cycle that people don't realize how significant this is. Very rarely will prosecutors call the lawyer for somebody into a grand jury. And so your viewers know a grand jury's uh, proceedings are secret. A person goes into the room, there's a prosecutor, there's a grand jury, and they ask a series of questions. The normal rule is you do not ask someone who is a target, and target means they could be charged with a crime in that investigation or looking at as if they could be charged with a crime because you don't want to set up a trap for someone in the grand jury. The fact that Rudy Giuliani was told that he's a target is really a significant development. So anything he says in there can be used against him. So you think, okay, I'll just take the fifth. But if these are the same people who would be in the place to recommend charges if they think I've done something, does it also not look good if I don't say anything at all? You know, I think that it raises a really good question and there's two problems for him. First, he could he could invoke his Fifth Amendment rights, but if he does that, um, that can't come into any criminal case. But if there's any civil case pending, that fact that she took that could come in, and that would hurt him and his reputation, obviously. Second, he might invoke the attorney-client privilege, um, which says, look, you're really after Donald Trump. Everything he told me is privileged. I'd like to answer your questions, but I can't. But there's an exception to the attorney-client privilege rule, which is called the crime-fraud exception. The basic premise is lawyers don't get to help their clients commit crimes. And if that's the nature of the communications, they don't remain privileged. So if he invokes attorney-client privilege, a judge will then be able to look at the circumstances and determine whether that privilege is valid or not. I, what I've always found interesting, though, about grand juries uh, and the whole secrecy thing is that it's secret except for the person being questioned, right? I mean, he's perfectly free to go on talk shows uh, tonight if he wants to and give his take, his spin on what took place there. And And doesn't that then potentially, you know, taint a, a future jury if he's actually uh, indicted for a crime? It can. And we saw that happen uh, with the search of Mar-a-Lago. The Justice Department was precluded from commenting on certain specific things. So former President Trump was allowed to fill the airwaves with his version. I think Rudy Giuliani could do the same thing. The problem with him doing that is 
At some point, that grand jury testimony can become public if anybody is charged. That testimony can be turned over to witnesses, and there's circumstances in which it can be provided to the media. So this, he's got to play the long game. He's already been suspended from the practice of law in New York because of some of his activities. And I think that Rudy Giuliani is going to be weighing his options very carefully. Jenny Durkin, former mayor of Seattle. Before that, U.S. attorney for the state of Washington, 2009 to 2014. Well, we're now, what, three years into the uh, coronavirus pandemic. The CDC is going to now be overhauled because it was felt that, I don't know, they didn't actually do a good job. (laughs) So uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. No matter what side of the COVID debates you're on, it's um, pretty acknowledged that the CDC probably could have done a better job. Unclear, often conflicting public health guidance and uneven rollout to the vaccines. It's been a rocky few years in spite of a lot of money and uh, years in training to prepare for a pandemic. And then when the monkeypox virus started spreading here in the U.S., again, the CDC seemed to stumble in its response. Monkeypox vaccines, for instance, continued to be in very short supply. So today, the CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, who we've had on our show a number of times, right, said it was time for a makeover. Joining us now is Dr. Nicole Sapphire, who's a medical analyst and contributor to Fox News. She's also director of breast imaging at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, I'm looking at a statement that uh, the CDC director put out this morning, and she says, for 75 years, CDC and public health have been preparing for COVID-19. And in our big moment, our performance did not really meet expectations. Well, I guess my question is, if 75 years of preparation didn't quite do the trick, what is another couple of months likely to do? (laughs) Well, uh, the short answer is not much. You know, the one thing that I found a little disingenuous um, coming out of the statement today from Dr. Walensky is when she said that The goal is a new public health action-oriented culture that emphasizes on accountability and timeliness. Here's the problem. In the face of a lot of the hiccups and missteps with the CDC, Dr. Walensky has been the leader of that. So why should the public and medical personnel alike believe that Dr. Walensky should be the one to actually lead this charge? Yes, the CDC needs a restructuring, but usually when something has such a massive colossal failure, like we have seen repeatedly from the CDC, which include political interference and influence, you would think that the leadership should be the first to be replaced so that you can garner some of that public trust and hopefully have some new ideas moving forward. What do you want to see for, you know, you guys, medical types, in terms of maybe getting info to you faster that you can digest? And then what do you want to see for us on the outside, the public, trying to go, uh, what's going on? (laughs) Well, the CDC over and over and over again have truly failed um, when it came to putting out data of any sorts. We have heavily relied on data from all over the world And the CDC, while they did put forth some studies, they were all heavily flawed, and they were so flawed that most of the results produced statistically insignificant results that in the academic world, we wouldn't wouldn't even consider these studies. But because they were kind of trying to fit their narrative and some of the public health measures that they were trying to institute, that's what they came up with. 
I mean, we have so much money being put forth for research right now, but you're, they're not still putting it forward with some of the most controversial issues. Like, should everybody get a vaccine and a booster? And what about masks in children? A lot of kids are still wearing masks going to schools. Uh, while they have done some research on it, the research, again, has been very subpar. And if we look to our international partners, you know, their research has showed us it doesn't necessarily have a benefit. So the CDC now taking it down out of the medical community, they need to, to get that public to actually look to them again and actually believe in their guidance. They have to admit when they were wrong. And they've started evolving some of their recommendations, um, you know, as recent as last week but they're not standing up still against restrictions and policy that's being placed all throughout the country that don't necessarily, you know, quote unquote, follow the science anymore. And specifically speaking, some of these mandates, vaccine booster and mask mandates. I mean, the fact that you still have universities mandating healthy young adults, you know, kids, I have a, I have a college student, so I'm gonna call them kids, you, they're mandating boosters in this extremely low-risk population um, when where there is documented evidence that they're at a higher risk of a side effect from the boosters than other aspects of the population. The fact that this the CDC doesn't recommend it, they don't, they not, they're not recommending mandates, but they're not speaking out against those that are putting forth these mandates. And I think if they really wanted to gain some more public trust back, you should see them start pushing back against these policies, but they're not doing that. Well, and, and here it seems to me is the other problem. And, and, and it's kind of encapsulated in what that uh, uh, statement was that I read earlier about how they've been preparing for 75 years and then along comes COVID and they screwed it up. Uh, I mean, we don't get these kind of, fortunately, uh, pandemics that often, although maybe we will as the years go by. But uh, how does the public know that anything they do put into effect in the months ahead is going to have the desired effect because you don't really know until, you know, what, the next big pandemic strikes. And then what do they say then? Whoops. Well, we, we studied it for another 150 years and we got it wrong again. Yeah, of course, there's not going to be any guarantee because what will the next pandemic be? And there will be one. It's probably going to be a respiratory virus. We've seen influenza. We've seen a coronavirus. You know, it's probably going to be along those lines. Um, we're currently having an outbreak of monkeypox, which is very different. Um, but the CDC just couldn't get out of their own way throughout this pandemic. We didn't have available testing early on, so we didn't know where the virus was spreading. And that's because while there were some private institutions trying to put out these tests, the CDC just kept them locked up with bureaucratic red tape and said that they wanted their own test to come out. Well, they finally got their test to come out and it didn't work. And so much time yeah. passed because they wanted their own test. Uh, and so that is just very frustrating. And, you know, the same thing with the messaging when the vaccines came out, it was really poor messaging out of the CDC. And I would be more forgiving for them if they didn't double down after some of their actions had been proven wrong. Rather than saying, mea culpa, we messed up here, but this is what we have to do going forward. They never really did that. They just kept doubling down saying, well, you know, 
we were kind of right then and we're just going to keep doing it because that's what we've been saying all along but all the data doesn't really support it but we're just going to keep doing it you know it, it for me there are some really good people at the CDC. There's some good work that is done there, but uh, they had they were heavily influenced politically, unfortunately. And so I think they need to get back out of the political influence and more into an objective scientific public health nature. But unfortunately, from the top level up, the CDC director is appointed by the president. Maybe we should just get away from that altogether and just have the most qualified person, not just someone that the current president likes. Dr. Nicole Sapphire, medical analyst, contributor to Fox News and director of breast imaging, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. That's an interesting idea, having the most qualified person do something. Yeah, imagine that. Well, when we come back, you might have been infected with the Omicron COVID variant and never even realized it. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. The last two Omicron waves of COVID infections that swept across the country, it spared few of us. The number of infections just really soared in 2022 as this very highly contagious variant went wild. But there's now a new research out of Cedars-Sinai that suggests as widespread as the Omicron surge was, it might have been even bigger than we thought. Yeah, they're saying the majority of people infected with Omicron likely never knew they had it. Dr. Susan Chang is at the Schmidt Heart Institute at Cedars and uh, co-author of this Omicron study. Doctor, thanks for being here. So what percentage did you land on? And are we talking like totally asymptomatic cases or, you know, I had a little tickle in my throat, but I thought nothing of it. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, the number we landed on was 56 percent. And obviously that's not an exact number. There's probably a lot of wiggle room around there, uh, depending on when and whether you measure it early during the Omicron surge or now or later in the Omicron surge. And it really had to do with people mostly not having any symptoms at all, but a small percentage, about 10% of the people we studied who had no idea they had Omicron infection said they did have some symptoms, but they, they thought the symptoms were due to the common cold or something else like allergies. And so they were pretty mild symptoms if they had any at all. And are these people who, if they were asymptomatic, but perhaps were testing for one reason or another, or even had some minor symptoms and still tested negative, might they have still tested negative on home tests? Yes, that's a great question. So we know from other studies, as well as some of our own data, that if you don't have a very high viral load, you're less likely to have symptoms. And if you don't have a very high viral load, then you're more likely to test negative on garden variety home test kits, which are otherwise pretty darn good, or even PCR, which is still the gold standard. Yeah. When it comes to the PCR, I mean, you can't always trust it 100 percent. I mean, what do you do if you if you've if you've been going on for a few days and your home test still shows negative, but then you have the, the mind at least to go and get that PCR testing and that's going to be the, the tell all? That should be, but we have seen cases. It, it is not 100%. Uh, so unfortunately, nothing is 100%. And we have seen cases of people who uh, have tested, retested. They have uh, pretty significant symptoms even. And so that would suggest the viral load is high. And yet they continue to test negative. The PCR comes back negative. But then lo and behold, later on, their uh, antibody test levels have given us the evidence. It's a real sort of... Uh, uh, proof of if proof is in the pudding, so to speak. It, it's it's the real tell-all at the end of the day, but it takes you know weeks to months to surface. The antibodies going up tells you your body, your immune system has seen the virus at least for a first time, if not for some people yet again another time, and, and it goes way up. And it tells us 
you did your immune system did fight off something uh, recently, and uh, if it was during the Omicron surge, chances are it was Omicron. So, you know, at, at this stage of the pandemic, we all know people who, who sort of boast yet. I don't know. I live with 50 people in my house. Forty nine of them got COVID. I never did. Is that likely? It's actually possible. It's uh, the, I can't put a number on the probability, um, but it actually is possible. A lot of this is probably a mixture of genes, behavior. What corner of the house did that person live in? Did they have the windows open? Were they wearing a mask all the time? And, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it is still possible uh, right now for there to be people who have not had uh, obvious evidence of COVID infection by testing, by antibody testing, by any type of uh, symptomatology. It is possible. That number is obviously getting smaller. Um, and why uh, those folks have escaped the virus up to this point uh, is probably due to a number of factors. Again, uh, genetic predisposition, prior uh, exposure to different types of coronaviruses previously in their lifetime prior to the pandemic and potentially other reasons. Is it that, though, or is it that we don't know yet how to measure the virus in that particular subset of people? Well, that's a great question. That very well may be possible. Um, right now, our tools are pretty good. So if we are able to, for a given person who has had an exposure, catch them at the right time, get a rapid antigen test or a series of tests or PCR at the right time, get their antibodies measured at some point afterwards, maybe serially at multiple time points. Usually if all of that has been done, especially in a research study like ours, we can capture the presence of you know some recent infection event. But it is possible, like you're saying, that you know our, our tools are, none of our tools are 100%. Even together, they may not be 100%. Where do you think we should fall now, knowing this on the spectrum of worry? Is this, uh, okay, uh, so many people have had this, they didn't even know it. Uh, great, fine, whatever. Or is this, oh no, I'm going to go outside and I'm going to get Omicron and I'm not going to know it and then I'm going to get long COVID on the other side? Yeah, th th this is, for us, this is sort of good news, bad news. Um, you know, as it has been for some time, but hopefully getting better. You know, the good news is that the vast majority, we think, of Omicron cases, if our numbers are representative of that subset of the population that's very interested in COVID research, very engaged, wants to be aware if they can be aware. So if our study numbers would suggest that most people have not been aware of the Omicron infection, most people have had Omicron uh, who've had Omicron, didn't know it, had had no symptoms or even very mild symptoms. That's a good news. Um, the bad news is Omicron still affects some people quite severely, severely enough to land them in the hospital and in some cases still cause death. So, so that's the bad news. So in between where most people live, we're now in the situation, I think, with data from this study as well as from others, in a situation of, you know, we want to live with fewer rules, fewer regulations. But I think now hopefully we can kind of um, adopt and embrace the freedom of being able to make more informed decisions and choices around how we continue to move forward and protect our own health, but in ways that also potentially protect the health of others too, and, and that in our community. So if I'm exposed to somebody through a, a work uh, event, a social gathering, or someone in the household who tests positive, I'm going to try to take this information be a little bit more thoughtful about what I'm going to spend the next few days. I'm going to probably lay low, and if I'm going to be around people who 
I may or may not know are immunocompromised. I'm going to potentially, you know, be more mindful and, and, and wear a mask if I'm, you know, close to those individuals or in, in, in environments um, where uh, people are physically, you know, closer to each other. I'm going to be more mindful watching my symptoms, my own symptoms. And if I have access to testing, I might test myself, you know, not just once but twice and, and just see what happens. And I, once I'm at the outside the window of potentially having developed something after that known exposure event, you know, I'm, I'm going to hopefully, you know, be able to get back to, to normal. But those are the types of things that we're hoping people might take from the study in terms of the data that we, we found. All right. Dr. Susan Chang, that's the uh, Smith Heart Institute at Cedars-Sinai, co-author of this Omicron study. Doctor, thanks. More in-depth on the way. Another half an hour. This is KNX In-Depth. Mike Simpson and Charles Spellman. UCLA joined by USC. It's going to leave the uh, Pac-12 by 2024. Greener pastures in the Big Ten, but the uh, process could be easier for the Trojans and the Bruins. UCLA has to answer the UC regions, and the governor, who's on the border regions, is not a fan of the move to divorce from the Pac-12. The regions met today to hear a report about the impact of UCLA leaving the Pac-12. And there are reports that the regents would be seeking to extract a financial price from UCLA for fleeing to the Big Ten. With us now is Andrew Zimbalist, who is a professor of sports economics at Smith College. Thanks for being with us. So does, is this the kind of thing that a, a fan of either team would have reason to care about? You say either team being USC or UCLA, Yeah, I presume. Well, look, I mean... What, what you're looking at prime, prime, probably is a 30, 40, or $50 million increase in conference distributions. Uh, immediately, there'll probably be an increase of about 30 million. Uh, when the new television contract kicks in in a few years, it'll, it'll be larger than that. Uh, the, the, the haul that the Big Ten takes in will, will grow substantially, and the amount that the Pac-12 uh, takes in will probably go down. Uh, so, yeah, if you're a fan, if what you care about is football and, and nothing else, then there's a better chance that your football teams will succeed uh, with, with this move. Uh, but even looking further down the road, because there's a general restructuring of college sports happening right now that in part has to do with uh, trends towards athlete compensation. Uh, and in part, it has to do with what obviously is going to be a concentration of, of the, the top schools into probably only two conferences and, and about 30 or 32 schools. Uh, UCLA fans and USC fans probably want their, their school, their, their team to advance to that top level. We now have power five conferences, but it's probably going to be power two conferences in another three or four years. Yeah, it's shrinking. So what do we make of this meeting today? Is this the kind of thing where it's like, well, we're going to give you a stern talking to because um, some of those regions don't like this, but there's not much we can do about it. Or is this some sort of you need to compensate Berkeley because Berkeley's going to hurt if UCLA moves? What happens out of this, if anything? Yeah, so it, this this is a peculiar situation. I'm, I'm not sure that the Big Ten anticipated it, but the, the Big Ten, I think, is is in a position of, of substantial leverage here. Uh, if if the University of California system says none of our schools are going to play in, in your in your conference, then the Big Ten goes to Washington or they go to Oregon and they add they add one of uh, one of those two teams and they have 16 teams. Obviously, uh, they still have the California media market because USC stays. So I don't think UCLA has a tremendous amount of leverage here. And because UCLA doesn't, I don't think that 
that the, the regents have all that much leverage. Now, it's a separate matter if the, the regents want to go to UCLA and say, look, your revenues are going to go up initially by approximately $30 million. We want half of those uh, for the general benefit of, of the uh, educational system in California. I would think that, um, that UCLA probably will have to go along with that. But that's quite, quite a different matter than, uh, than, than changing the football alignment. And I'm not sure it would make sense, as you phrased it, for the regions to say you have to give us some money directly to Berkeley because they're going to hurt. Berkeley has never been a football powerhouse. They've been a beneficiary financially of, of being in, in the Pac-12 uh, relative to being in a smaller conference. But in any event, I, I think putting some additional money into the Berkeley football program is, is really um, throwing, throwing money out the window. Andrew Zimbalist, professor of sports economics, Smith College. Thanks. You know, they say uh, that we are what we eat. When we come back, we're going to tell you what we should eat. I am a salmon. <laughs> You're a salmon? <laughs> This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Are we making healthy choices today? Uh, it can be hard. Green leafy vegetables, right? Go and eat a plant. It's going to be good for you. Heavily <laughs> processed food, probably always bad. But the middle, the gray area, it trips people up. Uh, ice cream, nuts, granola bar. Wh which one do you think is the better one? Well, uh, that's where this food compass comes in. It's a guide to the tough food choices. And it will likely upend your idea of what can be considered a healthy or at least healthier food item. Dr. Darius Mosaferian is a dean for policy at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition, Science and Policy. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So uh, here I am for breakfast. I'm staring at, on the one hand, a big bowl of ice cream with nuts all over it. It's an interesting breakfast, Charles. Yeah, well, that's what I do. It's a free country. <laughs> yeah. You can do whatever you want. And on the other side of the of the equation, I'm also looking at, I don't know, a kind of dry-looking granola bar, but I'm probably thinking, ah, of course, I want to go for the granola bar. It's better for me than the ice cream and nuts. Am I right or wrong? Well, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. People are really confused, and, you know, once you get past fruits are good for you, vegetables are good for you, and you know, soda is bad for you. It's very complicated. And so we created Food Compass to try to answer this exact question, putting together about 50 different attributes of foods across nine domains, including not only just the nutrients and vitamins and minerals, but things like processing, things like phenolics, added sugar, food ingredients. Uh, and it's actually, it, we found it to work extremely well and it, and it really helps with that question. And so, so while you're, the answer to the question depends on the granola bar, is it whole grain? Does it have nuts? Does it have healthy fats? Or is it mostly just refined starch? And if the ice cream is a mostly natural ice cream and you've got plenty of nuts on there, the ice cream actually m will probably get a higher score and be better for you than a highly refined starch uh, granola bar. Is it natural ice cream, Charles? I don't care. I'm going. I'm going. I'm going. <laughs> Either way, he's going, just going to go with this. I'm going with this. Is just how, always ice cream. I, I can say it's been medically approved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a doctor told me to eat this for yeah. breakfast. Um, but we can do the same kind of thing that you were talking about with the the Cheerios versus like an omelet thing, because this is another one of the examples you use, right? People think that all cereal is bad for whatever reason, but maybe the eggs have fat and you don't want too much of that uh, if you're trying to, to do some sort of diet, but the Cheerios have been fortified because they put vitamins in there for a reason. 
Well, you know, cereals are, are really confusing, as you mentioned, and animal foods are really confusing. You know, on average, an egg is kind of neutral for you. It's not really good for you. It's not really bad for you. It's kind of in the middle. And probably the most important thing is what you do with the egg. What, what else do you add to it? Are you adding vegetables and, and fruits and, and healthy oils? That's great. Are you eating it with, you know, bacon and white bread? That's probably not great. And the same is kind of true for cereals. You know, 20, 30 years ago, cereals were pretty bad universally, but there's a lot of whole grain cereals now. And, you know, while whole grain cereals may, may not always be the best if they add sugars and other things, you know, a whole grain cereal, especially if it has some nuts or some other things could be pretty good for you. And so our food compass really helps with that. And I think one of the things that might surprise people is cereals that are really just starch, but don't have sugar. People sometimes think of as a, as a healthy choice. Um, you know, a cereal like cornflakes or, or a cornflake cereal, but that's just starch. That gets actually a pretty poor score. And a cereal that's that's whole grain gets a pretty good score. And, and similarly, eggs, depending on what you eat it with, get a pretty pretty high or pretty low score, uh, depending on what else is, is there. Well, and you know, what, I, what, I, for on, for, what I put oh, sorry, on eggs, I was going well, to say, ahead. what I put on eggs is ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's, there's that, there's, there's, I think there's cheddar cheese flavored ice cream. So that, yeah, that the Tillamook ice cream, sprinkle it on yeah. there. What's yeah. like the, what scores a hundred? Is it like broccoli or something? It's, it's mostly, you know, many fruits, many nuts um, score a hundred, um, lots of vegetables, but not all vegetables, not all fruits. Um, some fruits score sort of in the eighties and the nineties. And I, we should have said from the beginning that the food compass scores foods from one to a hundred. And on average, foods that are 70 or higher are foods that we sh you should probably eat more of. Foods that are sort of in the 30 to 69 range are foods to eat in moderation and foods less than 30 are, are foods to be avoided. And so while some fruits and vegetables score 80, some 90, they're all in that kind of top category. Uh, and you know, m many other foods are up there. Some, some fish uh, and, and yogurts, uh, plain yogurts are quite high as well. But, so but I think really what, what this is useful for is for the packaged mixed dishes with lots of ingredients or even restaurant meals. This can be used for restaurant meals because that, that's really what starts to get complicated for people. I'm curious because you said it goes from one to a hundred, hundred being the, the, the best for you, one being, I guess, the worst for you. What would be like a one or a two? Well, there's, there's some things that you might expect to be a one or a two. So, you know, sodas, energy drinks, um, things like that. I think, you know, it's sports drinks are sort of like a three or a four. So maybe a little better because they have some nutrients, but sports drinks aren't that good for you. Some, some really bad, you know, kind of candies that are just, you know, highly processed candies, but also down in the ones are things like, you know, instant ramen noodles, which is basically a load of starch with, you know, salted broth. That's, that's a, some of those are ones. And even things like just white, a white pita bread that's, you know, super high in sodium. Plain pita bread is, is all starch, it's 100% glucose, and there's no nutrients with it. And so that is also a one, actually. So that could be surprising to people that looking at that, you know, high salt pita bread next to Skittles, they get the same negative score, but that's actually consistent with the negative effects on, on a person's uh, body and metabolism. Salmon's a 93. Spinach is a hundred. I'm reading it right. Spinach here. would be a hundred. Well, Popeye knew, <laughs> of course right? A hundred. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We didn't, we didn't give extra points for, for the, the Popeye factor. Yeah. But, making you strong. Been, right. I hate yeah. spinach. <laughs> he likes ice cream. I like ice cream. Well, I the, hate the, spinach. The, the nice thing. I mean, one thing about the food compass is we've gotten lots of positive emails, but we've also gotten angry emails like, Hey, I, why should I switch from food <laughs> X to Y? Because it has a higher score. And our, our point is you don't have to switch your whole diet. And if you like to eat cereal for breakfast, choose a higher scoring cereal. If you like to eat eggs 
for breakfast, do something that makes the eggs score better. If you're gluten-free, don't go start eating a high scoring grain, eat, eat something else. It's really about helping people with, with complicated decisions. And if, if we can get you know, retailers or, or food companies to start putting it right on the package, they're doing that in Europe with some other scoring systems, right? That could be just give a really simple rule of thumb for people. Can anyone just use this thing or, or how, do I, how do I work the compass? Well, we've, we've, I love the term. That's great. So, so, you know, we're, we as an academic institution have published the science and we've made the score openly available. So we're hoping that companies, app companies, other companies will, will start to work with it. And we're certainly willing to help anybody kind of understand it better, but we've made it publicly available, made the score publicly available. If you're the average consumer, the score is too complicated to, to do yourself in the grocery store. So we really need some of these smart 15 year old, you know, kids to go out and make a few apps that you can just sort of scan the code and, and get the food compass score. Calling smart kids, make apps. Uh, Dr. Darius Mozaferian, Dean for Policy, Tufts Friedman School, Nutrition, Science, and Policy. You don't need a compass. Tell me what you eat, I'll tell you yes or no. <laughs> I had salmon today. No. <laughs> I'll have ice cream tonight. Yes. There we go. There we go. See, it's easy. More in-depth tomorrow.